this is this I is thought it. I thought Matt was going middle. Apologies. Yeah. No. We did the uh, as you might expect bare minimum to prepare for tonight. This is this is a bit. But here we are, uh, Dallas, so get... Texas. What's going on? Dallas, Texas, this is your to be with you tonight. Let's fucking go. All right, Dallas, we're in Dallas tonight, and, you know, I thought we would, uh, we would investigate local politics here in Dallas. So there's one local politician running for office here in Dallas that I think is very worthy of all of our support. Can we uh, put him up on the big board there? So, I mean, if you have a chance to vote in the RISD Board Trustee Place 4 election coming up soon, consider, consider, dropping, consider dropping your vote for Mr. Lee Harvey. He's a straight shooter. <laughs> so, Dallas, obviously, you know, we got, we got the boy running for office here. So we thought, you know, okay, well, what's the special we can do for the Dallas show? And by special, I mean, how can we, how can I finally placate our hog fans who've been bothering me about this for what feels like 10 years now? But I don't know if you noticed or not uh, the button that I'm wearing right now, but for those in the back, it says, re-elect Barbara's husband in 1992. That's right, Dallas, we're talking the Kennedy assassination, so for you guys here tonight, we are premiering part three of Poppy. <laughs> The greatest Texan of all time, George H.W. Bush. I think we'd all agree. <laughs> the Texans Texan, they called him. The most Texan. So, just a, just a little to refresh your memory here. When we left, left, left off with our intrepid hero, uh, he was sequestered in China to avoid the fallout of the Watergate scandal that he helped um, engineer. Yes. He had just been involved in pulling off what was essentially a kind of intelligence state coup against yes. Richard Nixon. He was trying to do uh, foreign policy. No, you can't do that. That's not your job. And, and then had just been appointed head of the CIA by Gerald Ford, despite seemingly having no experience whatsoever working for the CIA. I don't know nothing about this business. I'm just happy to be helping. M many people said that he was like a Ted Lasso figure of the CIA. <laughs> You know, he just he just kind of ended up there, and it's like, well, I mean, I guess this is a mix-up, but you I'm know, gonna he, do the best I can do. He and came he, he came into the CIA after the church committee. It was sort of a losing team, and they needed to be revived by some good old-fashioned positive thinking. Yeah, no, he, fuck, that is actually what happened. Yeah, no, he he got that team on track. To this day, they've had very few bad seasons. <laughs> This is fucking with me because I cannot think of a, a contemporary political figure who is more like Ted Lasso than George H.W. Bush. It is uncanny. Yeah. Fuck, he just needed the goddamn mustache. Uh, he, also, um, he also eats pussy, too. Is that a Ted he Lasso thing? He does do that, yes. <laughs> so, yes, he was brought into sort of clean house after Richard Helms in the rather damaging revelations of the church committee, which revealed, among other things, experiments on human guinea pigs, mind control programs, uh, political assassinations and coups, domestic surveillance, run down the list. Now, the, the, and the, the, this was the shit that they were just willing to disclose. The family jewels, the family as Richard jewels. Jewel Helms called it, yeah. 
So, uh, we, so check this out. This is, uh, once again, uh, thank you to uh, Russ Baker and his book, Family of Secrets, for providing much of the uh, information here tonight. But I did want to talk about the, uh, there is a New York Times editorial page. There is a, the, the, the editorial section. There is a New York Times editorial to uh, commemorate the fact, hey, ladies and gentlemen, our, our new CIA director, and there, you could tell that they were really struggling for things to talk about because they ignored the fact that he had been a CIA agent pretty much his entire adult life. So let's put up the, uh, the New York Times uh, article. A breezy head of the CIA, George Herbert Walker Easy Bush. breezy, baby. Look at him. Read here. This will be sort of a refresher on the career of uh, Poppy. Uh, shortly after arriving in Peking last fall as chair of the American Liaison Office, George Herbert Walker Bush astonished fellow diplomats by arriving at official receptions on a bicycle instead of a limousine. Just like the Chinese do it. <laughs> or Ted Lasso. He also has a bike. He would do that. Oh, my God. If Ted Lasso showed up in Beijing to, like, ingratiate himself, you know that motherfucker would fucking just ride around on a goddamn bicycle. Which is exactly what George and Barr did when they were in Beijing. His mode of travel was typical of the heavy casualness of this one-time Texas oil billionaire, no, millionaire, whom President Ford named tonight as head of the Central Intelligence Agency. The lean and handsome Mr. Bush, who is noted, uh, sorry, uh, who is a noted host and a versatile athlete. This is the guy who just got appointed head of the CIA, and they're like, well, let's look at this. Well, um... His wife throws good parties. He could, he could play baseball. He was <laughs> played baseball. He's in cool. Yeah. Uh, is the product of an aristocratic Connecticut family. His father, Prescott Bush, served in the United States Senate. Yet, as chief American representative to the China, George Bush has succeeded at least to a limited degree. <laughs> that, I mean, honestly, that's the best kind of degree. Like, realistically... I mean, like, look in your heart. Are you more like, are you going to succeed to a degree or to a limited degree? We all know. Instead of formal dinners and receptions, the Bush is entertained by serving soft drinks and popcorn while showing old movies. Last July 4th, they had an American picnic, hot dogs, hamburgers, and beer on the grounds of the American compound. There were door prizes, including an exercise cycle for a corpulent Middle Eastern ambassador. <laughs> Wait, that, that's so fucked up. They just have some, like, some fat, like, Saudi, like, oil sun come through, and George Bush is just like, I got you a gift. <laughs> Here, here's Joan Fonda. Uh, continuing, it says, uh, one observer of the Peking scene said recently... <laughs> it's Dime Square or something. <laughs> One observer of the Peking scene said recently, George Bush has become a center of attention and, aff and affection in the diplomatic community. His friends range from a clerk in the Italian embassy, a tennis partner, to the highest ranking ambassadors. So he has two friends. He made two friends in China. Uh, George Bush has often amazed friends and critics with his talent for smiling <laughs> in the face of keen political disappointments. He was twice elected to the House in 1966 and 1968, but was defeated for the United States Senate in 1964 and 1970, and three times mentioned in vain as a vice presidential candidate. <laughs> Funny you bring that up. <laughs> uh, just, I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit. If confirmed by the Senator, Senate as director of the Central Intelligence, uh, Mr. Bush may face the most difficult challenge of his career, since in a, it is a post requiring a low political profile, and he is openly ambitious politically. 
Mr. Bush, who was born on June 12th, 1924, in Milton, Massachusetts, looks far younger than he is. <laughs> He's a goddamn dime. Mm. They're He's really a snack, and he is a pog. <laughs> they're really in the tank for him in this article. This is like, you know, they're writing about LeBron. They're writing about LeBush here. <laughs> talking about how good he is and smiling, his two friends, how he gave soda to everyone at his party. <laughs> uh, so just the end here, it says here, um, after the war, he went to Yale, where he captained the baseball team and won a Phi Beta Kappa key before graduating in 1948. After that, he built up an oil drilling business in Texas that made him a millionaire. He is married to the former Barbara Pierce. They have five children. Politics, he said, a few years ago, is always going to be a part of me. So, politics is always going to be a part of him. Can't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. So... Yeah, Gerald Ford, uh, he nominates him to be director of the CIA. And it's funny to think about, like, uh, he's been t mentioned a bit for vice president. He did, not sail through, he did not sail through the confirmation because, you know, as the, as the Times article mentions, he had already run for uh, political office a number of times as a Republican and was very much planning to do that again when he was nominated for the position. So uh, to, to allay people's fears, uh, Gerald Ford... Uh, issued an official statement on behalf of George Bush that stated that he had, uh, at Poppy's urging, that stated that he would never, ever seek or hold the vice presidential Never! <laughs> he would never even think to do such a thing. And honestly, it's disgusting for you to even ask. <laughs> so he was eventually confirmed. Uh, I think like tw 23 people voted against him, but he was confirmed fairly easily. And after he was confirmed, obviously the first order of business is help manage the agency's response to the church committee and its rather troubling revelations and continue the mission of scrubbing everything like Richard Helms had been doing before he was shown the door. And just, you know, basically just backing up dump trucks of papers to an incinerator. <laughs> uh, he, took, he took over in 1976 and was given a clear mandate by Gerald Ford a sweeping reorganization that placed more power in the hands of the director than had ever existed before. Interesting. Strange for a guy with no experience whatsoever in, in intelligence to suddenly yes, find no himself... Idea. He is just happy to be there. <laughs> to suddenly find himself in a bureaucratic an executive bureaucratic position that all of a sudden more power has oh, been placed... Oh, shucks. In you want me to do it? Well, I, I guess I will. Uh, and it also increased the CIA's authority over other uh, departments, like intelligence, like the, the Pentagon's DNI and like several other intelligence agencies. It really made clear that the CIA, like they were all subordinate to the CIA. And everyone is subordinate to this, this, to this Ted Lasso figure who's just been yeah. given, the, given the keys to the kingdom. He's just like, oh, 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 heck, y'all, come on in here. Like, yeah. get around, you know? Usually when something's been the uh, subject of tremendous malfeasance, you want to concentrate power within it. And it's I was just true. thinking, uh, just on the Ted Lasso thing, it, it is such a funny moment here because if anybody's listened to Hell of Presidents, Gerald Ford really is president football. It's and true. just like th this moment where it's like president football and that Times report that's like, you would write the exact same profile of somebody you were hiring to coach your local rec league. Yeah, that's you it. Know? It's like, meanwhile, they're just creating a charnel house in Central America the entire time. And they're like, but he sure throws a good hot dog picnic. <laughs> President football and president baseball. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. Uh, as CI director, uh, Bush exercised another Bush family specialty, which is systematically favoring an intelligence that played into hardline conservatives' like fears of Russia and the Soviet Union. And I'm talking about, of course, 
a direct reversal of the Nixon and Kissinger policy of detente in favor of three gentlemen named Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, and Dick Cheney. Yes, that's correct. He was, oversaw the creation of what was known as the Pentagon's Team B. Team B, uh, they're basically like, they, the Team B, like they were made up of hardline neoconservatives who had long uh, pilloried the Central Intelligence Agency because their intelligence was too soft on Russia. And in their mind, the problem with the CIA's intelligence is that it was based only on data and not vibes. <laughs> It was only hard data, no vibes. And you got guys like Wolfowitz in there, and he's saying, have I ever been to Russia? No. Do I speak Russian? Definitely not. Do I understand the Russian mindset? Absolutely. <laughs> and it's only through vibes can something like that be accomplished. Uh, no, but like the Team B specialty was, uh, like the CIA, they would ask for a report from the CIA on uh, Russia's doomsday weapon. And the CIA would come back and they said, we've put all our intelligence analysts on this and we have found no evidence whatsoever of a Russian doomsday device, i.e. we think it's highly unlikely that one exists. Team B would go, ah, <laughs> you see, you fools. The fact that you found no evidence for it is what it assures us that it does exist. Yeah, Team B, any time in the TCAT years that you would see a conservative fret about a, you know, Iranian submarine that is just miles away from the U.S. coast... They're really playing off the legacy of Team B. Team B is in the hearts of every amateur Kremlinologist and Russia expert, whether they're in Ukraine, uh, like Terrell Star, or just stateside, typing it up. So yeah, like he had, uh, he, he oversaw the guys, like the, the planted the seeds of what would become like you know the Iraq War and like that whole intelligence debacle. Uh, but, like, I think this underscores here that, like, it's kind of the mistake people make when they talk about intelligence. Because, like, you know, you read accounts of this and they're like, oh, like, they didn't like the CIA intelligence analysts because their intelligence was not biased enough. And it's just like, that's just because the analysts weren't reading the room good enough. I mean, there is no, yes, there is data out there that you can, control, you can attempt to draw, like, what, what are more or less rational conclusions from. But there is simply no way that an, an organization like an intelligence gathering bureaucracy exists in a government such as ours or any in the world that where intelligence is not going to be subordinate to the politics of the people right. who surround it. Yeah. It's always going to be political, and there's yeah. always going to have an agenda to it. Mm -hmm. Team B was just like, they had to change the agenda. Yeah. They had to change the agenda to make it seem like, to justify restarting the Cold War, essentially. Yeah. After, I mean, again, like, and keep in mind that Nixon was just, he just oversaw Nixon being removed from office, more or less, because, as Matt said, him and Kissinger attempted to exercise pretty much total control over U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, that's not which good. Which is you not allowed. You're not in charge. They were calling oh, you the president. Who do you think you are? The president? Oh, oh no, <laughs> that's adorable. So, uh, in, in addition to um, uh, cooking the book, scrubbing the record um, to cover up everything the Church Committee was looking into, uh, and cooking intelligence about so Soviet doomsday devices, uh, Poppy oversaw uh, another thing the Bush family specializes in: uh, privatizing things. And he oversaw like a near total privatization of U.S. intelligence in the form of getting the Saudis to fund covert actions unapproved by Congress. It's so easy. Oh, oh no, how are we going to get this approved by Congress? Who gives a shit? Get a suitcase full of diamonds from a Saudi prince. Yeah, the late 70s were the time when uh, Prince Turkey Al-Fazel, who is Bush's equivalent in Saudi intelligence, General Intelligence Directorate, uh, started the policy of Wahhabization, but under the aegis of Saudi intelligence, which was 
going to places that were near Russian or Russian sympathetic uh, governments and just giving already Muslim populations more money than they'd ever seen to be like, okay, you're Wahhabi now. And then uh, you just put it in the oven, let it sit for about 20 years, and there's, there's new money for the Black Eagle Trust Fund. <laughs> and by the way, the, uh, the Saudi funding for CIA covert operatives, that made a shitload. It was a very lucrative racket for many of his cronies here in Texas. In fact, I think many of the buildings here in Dallas are probably built with money that was siphoned Absolutely. off of those operations. Yeah, no so, uh, but here's the problem, though. When it comes to farming out CIA operations, uh, there's always going to be a little bit of blowback, as Felix alluded to. But uh, there's one very, there's one very specific thing that uh, Poppy oversaw in uh, September of 1976. He was only confirmed that February, but in September of that year, there was a bombing on DC's Embassy Row. There was a terrorist assassination of the former Chilean ambassador to President Allende, a man named Orlando Let. Let- Letelier, Orlando Letelier, he, him and an American associate, a woman named Ronnie Moffat, were assassinated with a car bomb in the middle of Washington, D.C. On, on, motherfucking circle. on Embassy Row, like yeah. the highest security place in D.C. outside of the White House. This is where like every country in the world has their embassy. We've driven past it. Some of them are very impressive. Some of them not, not so much. Can you believe we went from this to Lev Parnas? <laughs> Yeah, if you're, not, if you're not strapping a bomb to a fucking chassis of a car, what are you even doing? I don't care. Subsequent investigations by Chileans revealed that the assassination had been carried out by a former CIA contractor by the name of Michael Towney at the direction of Chile under Pinochet's DNI, DINA uh, like security director. It was their, ter- their terrifying internal security forces, and they carried out this assassination on American soil, including killing an American citizen as part of what was known as Operation Condor, which yeah. was this like, international program of assassinations that was kind of like Operation Phoenix, but for the Western Hemisphere. And the idea was it was like this fascist spider web that would like, like any sympathizer of any socialist government, they would touch you in any country that you were in. It didn't matter if they, they didn't, just didn't have to disappear you just because you were in Argentina or Chile or whatever. Yeah. They would kill you in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Why did they do that? Well, it's because when you kill someone with a car bomb in D.C., the CIA tends to take notice of something like that. Except um, George, w. Bu- George H. W. Bush was director of the CIA at the time. And, uh, oh, sorry, I was reading here. It says, uh, under direct CIA director George H. W. Bush, uh, leaked for public consumption through Newsweek magazine. He uh, leaked a, a, an intelligence assessment to Newsweek magazine, clearing the Chilean government's feared intelligence service, DINA, which was then run by Contreras, who was like a, another very scary guy. Relying on the word of Bush's CIA, Newsweek reported that the Chilean secret police were not involved in the Letelier assassination. The central, agency, the central intelligence agency reached its decision because the bomb was too crude to be the work of experts and because the murder coming... The murder was coming while Chile, Chile's rulers were worrying, wooing U.S. support. It could only damage the Santiago regime. Operation Condor, just a side note, had the benefit for America, sickos on the American side in that it was like the greatest direct mail child theft ring probably of all time. Was it like John Negroponte when he was ambassador to Honduras was running a, a child adoption racket? Yeah. Of like pe- orphans who were made by the dirty war that he was running, he was selling to American families through the U.S. Embassy in, in Honduras? Yeah, yeah. There were, there's been a lot of uh, 
a lot of media made about the theft of babies, specifically in Argentina, but they were doing it everywhere the Condor was. Uh, one last thing about uh, CIA contractor Michael Towney, who planted the car bomb. And this is another sort of another thing that rhymes with the career of George H.W. Bush and his entire family. Would, you, would, it, would it surprise you to learn that Michael Towney was on the State Department's watch list for international terrorism, but was allowed to enter the country more or less completely unmolested? <laughs> Does yeah. that sound familiar to anyone? Uh, and and so the CIA, when the CIA said uh, that, oh no, uh, the Chileans, they didn't do this. We know, trust us. Who did it? Their argument was it was communists who were trying to make Letelier a martyr. It's <laughs> like they were imagining an international communist movement where they're like, hey, Orlando, would you, willing to, like, would you be willing to die like, for clout? <laughs> and he was like, absolutely. But unfortunately... Orlando Orlando Letelier wasn't the only assassination causing a headache for Papi. There was still the matter of Dallas in 1963 for him to nail shut. I'm going to read a quote now from uh, Russ Baker's book. Although Papi couldn't remember where he had been on November 22nd, 1963, and couldn't couldn't be bothered to recall his old friend, George de Morenschultz's precise role in the matter or in the life of Lee Harvey Oswald, as CIA director, he began paying keen attention to the resurgent assassination investigations. So uh, Papi composed an internal memo asking after a report regarding a visit by Jack Ruby to, Jack Ruby to Santo Traficante. <laughs> uh, it says, uh, Traficante, uh, two years after Bush left the CIA as director, would admit to congressional investigators of being part of a CIA, CIA operation to assassinate Castro in the 1960s, in 1960. As a side note, I didn't know this until I was researching it for the show today. Sam Giancana was killed in 1975 by an unknown gunman shortly before he was set to testify to the church committee about his role in the many plots against Castro. He was cooking sausage and peppers. So he came up and bing, right in the head. Just a little bit like a like a a little bit of like the mafia flavor to the Kennedy assassination here. Uh, Just another quote it says here: Later, the committee decided. This is uh, speaking of. um, uh, Tra- Traficante said he was brought into the Castro thing by uh, Johnny Roselli. And he uh, tested his later committee, decided to recall Roselli for additional testimony when he was called up. But by the time he was called, he had already been missing for several days. His decomposing body was later found yep. inside a 55-gallon in steel fuel drum. drum. Floating in Tampa Bay. <laughs> floating yeah. in dumbfounding bay near yeah. Miami. Yeah. He had been strangled and shot, and his legs had been sawed off. It is really sad when someone wants to kill themselves that badly. <laughs> Just really unfortunate. Call your friends, call your therapist, call any girl that you see. Just don't end up like him. In his testimony to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Traficante would say he had, he had been recruited for the Castro Project by fellow mobster John Roselli, who had testified in 1975 before the church, committees, uh, the church committee about efforts to kill Castro. In April 1976, while Poppy was CIA director, Roselli was again called before the church committee, this time to testify about the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. Then the oil drum thing happened. Then <laughs> so... We've got, a, we've got a renewed interest in the Kennedy assassination, but that, you know, that's bad for Poppy. But as we just explained, most of the mob guys who were going to testify were like already dead. 
But there was just one loose thread that dangled out in front this of Poppy this entire time. And that is his old family friend, George DeMorenschild, from yeah. right here in Dallas, Texas. In the case, in case you don't remember, George DeMorenschild was a Russian-born petroleum engineer who's like a Zelig figure to the whole Kennedy assassination. Uh, he was basically, uh, he was the uncle of President Poppy's prep school roommate at Andover. He was a friend of First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy's parents, an associate of Oswald, a notorious womanizer and bon vivant who was rejected by the wartime, offices of, wartime Office of Strategic Service for his alleged Nazi sympathies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, uh, George DeMorenschild was the guy who, uh, like, longtime family friends with the Bush family. He has known Poppy since he was in high school, pretty much. And he keeps showing up in the life of Poppy H.W. Bush. And he shows up here in Dallas because he basically is the, basically shepherds Lee Harvey Oswald and his Russian wife Marina. He shepherds them into this community of Dallas white Russians and became like their sort of social confidant, a very close friend of theirs. Uh, Demoran Schultz's wife, uh, Jeanne, uh, she was the one who claimed to have taken the photo of Oswald in the backyard, if you believe that photo was actually taken. <laughs> in... Okay, so, but in, uh, while this is going on, in September of 1976, there's a, basically like a, a growing, uh, after the church committee, a growing drumbeat of public interest, not just in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but also in Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Robert Kennedy. So after months of debate, the House agreed to open a new investigation into all of them, hence the House Select Committee on Assassinations. January of that year, so the beginning of the year, like September is when the House Select Committee on Assassinations is finally formed. In January of that year, George de Morenschild had written to a Dutch TV reporter named William, Willem, Alt, Willem Altmans, who had struck up a friendship with uh, George years earlier in Dallas when he was speaking to these like women, women's auxiliary groups that were like these fanatically arch-conservative Bircher types. Uh, and also, sidebar here about Willem Altmans, he, was, uh, he did attend Yale and graduated in the same class as William F. Buckley. So, like, all these people know each other. It's really amazing. So, so like, so he's talking to this guy, Altmans, who is this weird, like, in, in the writing about him, he's described sort of similar to George de Morenschild himself as sort of an intelligence-connected cipher. So, he, he, knows, uh, he knows that, that George de Morenschild is working on a memoir that he's seeking this Dutch TV reporter's help with. So, Morenschild is beginning to lose it. And later that year, he wrote this letter to George H.W. Bush, who was serving as the director of the CIA. This is an incredible letter that he wrote his old friend George. It's dated Dallas, September 5th. Dear George, you will excuse this handwritten letter. Maybe you will be able to bring a solution to the hopeless situation I find myself in. My wife and I find ourselves surrounded by some vigilantes. Our phone bugged and we are being followed everywhere. Either FBI is involved in this or they do not want to accept my complaints. We are driven to insanity by the situation. I have been behaving like a damn fool ever since my daughter Nadja died from cystic fibrosis over three years ago. I tried to write stupidly and unsuccessfully about Lee H. Oswald and, mu and it must have angered a lot of people. 
I do not know, but to punish an elderly man like myself and my highly nervous and sick wife is really too much. Could you do something to remove the net around us? This will be my last request for help, and I will not annoy you anymore. Good luck in your important job. Thank you so much. <laughs> Sincerely, George DeMorenschild, 2737 Kings Road, apartment 142, if anyone wants to check that out. <laughs> First floor apartment, pretty tough for a JFK co-conspirator. <laughs> you have to, like, you have to fuck up so bad to have, like, known Bush your entire life, to have helped kill Kennedy, and you end up being this guy. It's like Joe Biden's dad missing out on the great wave of post-war prosperity. Two of the biggest bag fumbles of all time. So... Obviously, this, this letter hits, like, the CIA's, um, like, mail department. <laughs> I just, I just want to say... Where Ari Gold was working. <laughs> I just want to say, if I ever get the chance to write a letter to a secretary-level individual, I'm absolutely going to sign it off. Good luck with your important job. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's like a pestering Jewish mom. <laughs> so, like, imagine, like, yeah, you're, you're in the CIA mail department, and you get a handwritten letter from a guy speaking you know, on very friendly terms with the director of the CIA, and the guy happens to be a guy who is, like, more associated with the Kennedy assassination than anyone other than Lee Harvey Oswald. So it's, like, routed around the agency, and, like, all these notes are appended to it. And then it, like, it finally gets across Director Bush's desk with, uh, with, with this memo. Mr. Bush, do you know this individual? <laughs> This is a side note to the director. And then uh, in, in an internal CIA note, uh, George H.W. Bush responded, I do know this man, DeMorenschild. I first met him in the early 40s. He was an uncle to my Andover roommate. Later, he surfaced in Dallas in the 50s, maybe? <laughs> he got involved in some controversial dealings in Haiti. Then he surfaced when Oswald shot to prominence. He knew Oswald before the assassination of President Kennedy. So that's like, I love that response because... This is the head of the CIA who uh, doesn't really recall much of anything about a close family friend who was that close to the guy who supposedly killed the president. But he refers to his controversial dealings in Haiti. I love that that's like such intelligence OPSEC because he's talking about like, well, I recall he did some controversial things in Haiti and not the vastly more controversial dealings with Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> so George Bush director of the CIA, actually penned a personal response to George. It reads as such. Dear George, please forgive the delay in my reply to your September 5th letter. It took time to thoroughly explore the matters you raised. Let me first say that I know it must have been difficult for you to seek my help in the situation outlined in your letter. I believe I can appreciate your state of mind in view of your daughter's tragic death a few years ago and the current poor state of your wife's health. I was extremely sorry to hear of these circumstances. In your situation, I can well imagine how the attentions you described in your letter affect both you and your wife. However, my staff has been unable to find any indication of interest in your activities on the part of federal authorities in recent years. The flurry of interest that has attended your testimony before the Warren Commission has long since subsided. I can only suspect that you have become newsworthy, in quotation marks again, and in view of the renewed interest in the Kennedy assassination and thus may be attracting the attention of people in the media. 
I hope this letter has been of some comfort to you, George, although I realize I am unable to answer your question completely. Thank you for your good wishes on my new job. As you can imagine, I'm finding it interesting and challenging. Very truly yours, George Bush, director. Okay, so Dallas, Texas, would it surprise you to learn that George Gamoran Schultz's life took a turn for the worse after sending the director of the CIA? What? <laughs> no, but he asked his old friend for help. In November of that year, just one month after writing the letter, uh, George's wife had him committed to a mental institution for three months at where? Dallas Parkland Hospital. That's right. You might remember Parkland as the hospital Kennedy was rushed to after getting his head blown off. She claimed, okay, so his wife, when, upon admitting him, claimed that he had attempted suicide three times. Just important to get that on the record. He had been attempting suicide three times already. So if he ever pulls it off, just know there's a precedent there. Uh, he claimed, he, yeah, he attempted suicide, was hearing voices, and believed that the FBI and Jewish mafia was out to get him. Literally everyone but the CIA. And uh, so his wife had him committed, in which he was treated with electroshock therapy. Oh. Years, a year after, uh, spoiler alert, George DeMorenshield kills himself, or kills himself. A year after his death, though, his wife would go on to tell a journalist a very different story about what preci precipitated George's hospitalization. I'm reading Family of Secrets here. She claimed that a doctor had appeared in Dallas for a brief period and administered injections to him. Following those injections, she said, George suffered a nervous breakdown, at which point she decided to have him hospitalized. The doctor, she claimed, vanished into thin air. I'll also note here, uh, Jeanne de Morinchel, George's wife, was also longtime friends with former CI director Richard Helps. So I just want to close it out here with just like a, just a little bit about the circumstances surrounding George de Morin Schultz's death. So in 1977, Bush leaves the CIA because, you know, people, like, he had a very, very short tenure as CIA director. He begged, because, you know, the Republicans lost the election, and he begged Carter to allow him to extend his tenure and really get done the reforms that he really was trying to implement. That didn't work. Carter canned him and, and uh, pointed this guy, Admiral Stansfield Turner, to reform the CIA. And he was a longtime Navy guy who actually did want to reform the CIA. And in Houston, we'll get into what happened in the, <laughs> to the Carter administration for going up against the Bushes. But so uh, remember, remember the Dutch uh, TV producer, TV reporter, uh, Willem Alt Altman, um, so he, uh, he returned to Dallas in 1977 and, and like Morinshall contacted him and he began to hint that he was writing something and wanted to tell Altman something troubling. Um, when he first sees uh, Morinshall for the first time in years, he is shocked at like how fucking, how bad it's gotten. Like this guy's, like he looks like, he looks haggard, he's paranoid, he like used to be a, a man of some, of some vigor. And it was an active tennis partner, and now he was a fucking complete wreck. And then he starts telling Altman all this shit about how he knew Jack Ruby and was a very compartmentalized part of a plot of Texas oilmen and intelligence operatives to kill John F. Kennedy in Dallas. He begs Altman to take him out of the country, and, uh, and then Altman takes him to his home in Amsterdam. He puts him up at his house, 
and helps him edit the memoir he's working on called I Am a Patsy, I Am a Patsy, both in exclamation points. This goes well, yeah, fine. What does that mean? <laughs> this goes fine for a couple of days until Altman, keep in mind himself also somewhat intelligence adjacent, says an old friend who is a Soviet diplomat will be joining them for lunch. The man arrives, and Morenschild said he'd like to take a brief walk, a brief constitutional before lunch. Who doesn't like to do that? So he leaves the house and never returns. He goes to Belgium and then gets a flight back to Florida. And, and one of the things that was found on him at the scene of his body, like with, on his body, was an affidavit that he had prepared accusing Altman of betraying him. And when you think about this in the context of like how George de Morenschild knew Lee Harvey Oswald and the role he played here in Dallas with Mr. Oswald, sort of shepherding him around ex-Russians, and then the whole thing of, of white Russians, but also the whole thing about Oswald being introduced to like arch-conservative anti-communist Russians after being an American who fucking... It's very weird. <laughs> went to the Soviet yeah, Union to renounce sense. his American citizenship and join a communist country. Yeah, and then married the, the daughter of a KGB general, and then he comes home, and it's like, hey, here are like arch-reactionaries hanging out with them. And it was cool for some reason. But just like in the context of why he says like, so this, this Dutch TV guy is like, oh my, like he's losing his mind, he's starting to tell him all this shit about the Kennedy assassination. And then his friend says oh, I have a friend of mine coming by. He's an ex-Soviet diplomat. You think in George Marshall's mind he began to feel like Oswald in that, like, all of a sudden you're being placed around Soviet intelligence operatives, you're being placed around Soviets so that when you end up killing someone or kill yourself, you know, the, the narrative is credibly presented about your associations and contacts. So he returns to Florida and the uh, House Select Committee on Assassination learns of this and sends one of their investigators to interview him. A man named, I, this is not made up, one of the coolest names ever, Gaten Fonzie. <laughs> Gaten Fonzie. He learns that Gaten Fonzie is on the way to interview him while he is being interviewed by Edward J. Epstein, no relation, <laughs> of Reader's Digest magazine. He kills himself later that afternoon. And then the one, he blows his head off with a shotgun. And then the other, the other part about that story I really love is that in Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Kennedy, he invents a story about how when he was a TV producer here in Dallas, he found out that Morin Schultz had returned to the United States and found out, he claims he found at the house he was staying at. And he says that he was knocking on the door going, come out, pinhead, as the guy put a shotgun in his mouth and blew his head off. I just think he killed himself because he didn't want to talk to Bill O'Reilly. Well, that, that's the funny thing. It's like, that's the story you're telling. It's like, yeah, this guy blew his head off instead of talk to me. <laughs> so just, and the, so sorry, there's just one last detail about the circumstances of his suicide. The shotgun that he used to kill himself was placed in the guest room that he was staying in by the proprietor of the house, a loaded shotgun was placed in his bedroom because she said she heard strange noises the other night. I mean, whatever, it's Texas, I buy it. <laughs> there's basically like, there's this whole constellation of people that the FBI investigated after the George DeMore and Schultz suicide, including a guy named Jim Savage, who uh, was an executive at Transcontinental Drilling Company who knew both Poppy and George DeMorenschild. Jim Savage was someone who uh, Morenschild gave his car to to drive from the airport back home. Uh, he'd worked with the Morinschild, and he'd also been a friend and colleague. Uh, no, he worked for a company called Kerr McGee, which, who was uh, for the Senator Robert Kerr, who was a colleague of Prescott Bush. In 1952, Savage uh, gave Poppy Bush a tour of Kerr McGee before he started 
Zapata Petroleum. And wouldn't you know it, the Kerr-McGee Oil Company was very instrumental in setting up George Bush very nicely in the oil business. Uh, Jim Savage's supervisor at Kerr-McGee was a guy named George Kitchell, who was also good friends with Poppy and helped him launch his political career in Houston in the early 1960s. Years after the assassination, Kitchell confirmed that he was friends with both Poppy and Morgan, de Morganschild, but he didn't know that the other two knew each other. Don't you hate it when, you know, friends of friends? But check this out. Here, here's, here's, the, here's the last thing I'm going to drop for tonight. This is just the last weird connection here. George Kitchell's brother was the FBI agent that Poppy George H.W. Bush called on November 22nd, 1963 to warn him about threats made on Kennedy's life here in Dallas. So... Now, this is part of like all just like creating his backstory, this cover here. He just like, it was about right-wing groups that were making death threats to Kennedy in Dallas. So he was like, day of, he was like, oh shit. Let me just contact my good friend's brother who works for the FBI and just get this story on the record real quick. So that is part one of part three of Poppy. <laughs> Dallas, Texas. We are gonna take a quick, quick break. We're gonna have a quick intermission. Please get a drink. Please tip your bartenders. We'll be back in the second half with Texas Boys Pendejo time. We got Jake and Thomas with us tonight. So chill out. We'll be back in a little bit. <laughs> so that, that's, enough about Dallas. Fuck Dallas, right? Let's get it going. Let's talk about George Pop. Let's talk about Poppy Bush's connections to the city of Houston. So Poppy leaves the CIA in 1977. Uh, after a very brief tenure, and of course he begged Jimmy Carter to let him stay on to you know, continue the important work he was doing. So he leaves government and goes back to the old family business, banking. But he does it here in Texas. He is hired as a special consultant to the first international bank shares of Dallas, which was at the time Texas's largest bank holding company. Under his reign, FIB acquired 50 banks and was only turned down by the Federal Reserve one time. Quick side note. First International Bank Shares of Dallas is owned by close family friends of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. 14 months after being hired as a special consultant, FIB went bankrupt and was bailed out by the government for $3.5 billion. But let's talk about another Texas bank, Maine Bank of Houston. It's a small, charming community bank with only about $58 million in deposits, which was between October 1978 and December 1979, buying $10.4 million a month in new $100 bills. Main Bank of Houston is notable here for two reasons. One, because the principal investors was a, the principal, one, of the, one of the principal investors was a Bush family crony by the name of Jim Bath. He was a guy who met and befriended George W. Bush during their service together in Vietnam in the Air National Guard. But two, and probably more importantly, it was the first time a joint Texan-Saudi banking partnership was done publicly. Just two months after Poppy became CIA director, Jim Bath started an aircraft brokerage firm. And he became acquainted with, because they wanted to buy planes from him, two scions of two very wealthy Saudi families, the Bin Mahfouzes and, of course, the Bin Ladens. <laughs> The principal investors in Main Bank of Houston were Jim Bath, Khalid bin Mahfouz, another Saudi named Gaith Farron, and one more guy, former Texas Governor John Connolly. So I just like to think about this, like, 
sorry about getting you shot, John, but here's a really sweet banking job I've got lined up for you after that magic bullet went through your wrist. Reading here from Family of Secrets, what most distinguished the tiny main bank was the highly unusual amount of cash the bank dispersed, more than $10 million a month in $100 bills. The authorities often consider such untraceable money flows to be signs of criminal activity, particularly money laundering often connected with drugs. Cash, however, is also the principal tool of covert operations. Uh, students of history will note that this bank is operating in the same time frame as Saudi intelligence is ramping up its Wahhabization policy of dumping maybe some of those fresh $100 bills in hotspots around the world where U.S. and Saudi enemies exist. Main Bank of Houston, however, was merely a minnow compared to the Leviathan known as the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, or the world's sleaziest bank. Khalid bin Mahfouz owned 20% of BCCI, and Gaith Farron, one of the principal investors in Main Bank of Houston, was understood to be their front man in the United States. BCCI was founded in the early 70s and shuttered in 1991. But forgotten now, for a time, was probably the biggest financial fraud and criminal conspiracy in human history. Reading more from Russ Baker, he describes it as a vast entity connected to the Pakistani military regime and key Gulf states with banks and branches in 73 countries, including 50 developing ones. Although its founder, Aga Hassan Abedi, along with his top brass, emphasized their Muslim religiosity, the institution would apparently do anything for anyone willing to pay for their services needed to be kept quiet. These range from helping Pakistan obtain a nuclear bomb to financing secret arms deals on behalf of the West while simultaneously serving as a money distribution network for many terrorist organizations. Some of their most famous clients include Saddam Hussein, terrorist mastermind Abu Nadal, Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega, and the elusive heroin kingpin of Asia's <laughs> golden triangle, Kun Sa. Some real Noriega I, didn't know we had some, I didn't know we had so many Noriega heads in the audience tonight. Abu, uh, Abu Nadal, uh, probably the biggest loser in that list, uh, he pops up again in another Poppy-related thing when Oliver North is testifying before Congress on Iran-Contra, and they ask him why he has all this cash, why he took all this money, and he starts fake crying and says that Abu Nadal threatened to kill him, so he needed to buy a home security system. <laughs> Despite having... And this is how evil this bank truly is. Despite having a fucking... A murderer's row of star banking clients, um, which also included Mossad, the MI6, and CIA. Most of the uh, like deposits, like most of the, most of the funding, was actually from ordinary people in developing countries, particularly in the form of remissions from guest workers from the Philippines working in Gulf countries. And when BCCI collapsed, millions of their patrons, many of whom were guest workers, lost what little they had of their life savings. Now, by 1988, in the last year of Poppy's reign as vice president, the Manhattan DA Robert Morgenthal informed the city of London, where BCCI was chartered, that he was seeking to indict it as a Ponzi scheme. In order to avoid a run on the bank and MI6, the Bank of England closed BCCI. Now, almost every attempt by multiple countries to unravel the extent of this criminal empire ran into a wall called national security. Investigating it would simply compromise the secrets of their clients, a.k.a. the Pakistani military, the Mossad, CIA, and MI6. The man in charge of investigating BCCI in America? That's right, Robert Mueller. <laughs> 
Would it surprise you to learn that his investigation turned up no evidence of the U.S. government enabling this vast criminal conspiracy? If he had looked a little harder, though, he might have found records of meetings between the BCCI's founder, Abedi, and at the time, Reagan CIA director, William Casey. Journalists alleged dozens of meetings between the two and alleged that they struck a deal to make BCCI the major conduit for covert operations. It was the way to launder millions of dollars in funds that had not been authorized by Congress. Another way around the old church committee. And here's another little thing. The guy in charge of regulating BCCI, when it, people believed it was just a bank and not a criminal conspiracy, the assistant secretary for enforcement under the Reagan-Bush administration was a man named John Walker, Poppy's cousin, George H.W. Bush's cousin. So here's where it gets good. So we talked about like how he uh, had a hand in stitching up Kennedy and Nixon. But like, keep in mind, he was out of office at this point and was very sore at the fact that Jimmy Carter and the Democrats had taken the White House, which is always the real prize. Um, and not, not only that, uh, Jimmy Carter had appointed a guy named Stansfield Turner to be the director of the CIA, who genuinely was an outsider to the intelligence community. So here's, where, here's what he does. He basically ensnares... The, or it's like the people connected to him ensnare uh, the uh, director of Carter's Office of Budget Management and Budget in a banking scandal, and they would use it in their effort to retake the White House in 1980. Uh, the guy named Bert Lance was Carter's OMB director, and around that, around the, like around early in the Carter administration, the Senate began looking into a dodgy bank loan he got to ensure compliance with the terms of a stock purchase in the Bank of Georgia. I'm sorry this is very dry. We're talking about banking here. But this is Houston. This is Houston. This is like, all of the, these are Dallas and Houston. Okay? There's, bank, there's banks everywhere in this country. So uh, because of that scandal, uh, Bert Lance resigns in 1977. And that's where Poppy and his friends step in. Lance is out of work and broke as shit. So imagine his surprise when Aga Hassan Abedi and Gaith Ferran are interested in buying Lance's bank stock, which was okay because Lance had already been approved by American regulators. Lance, of course, enthusiastically agreed and essentially became the unwitting middleman for the introduction of the BCCI into the American banking system. So if anyone investigated this, Lance's name would be front and center and not far off from his friend and former business partner, Jimmy Carter. So you begin to see why Carter's attempts to open up the books on the CIA went absolutely nowhere. Also, little known fact, uh, Jimmy Carter's idiot brother was also involved in an arms deal with Gaddafi and was given classified intelligence by Brzezinski, Mika's dad. It's a big new. So this is really what takes us from the end of Nixon to the beginning of the Reagan administration. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Poppy Part 3. And that takes us to our act two. We'll have a brief intermission, get some drinks. We'll be back with the Pendejo time, boys, in act two. Houston, Texas, sit tight. We'll be back in a little bit.